Welcome to Gov Innovator. I'm Andy Feldman. Our focus today is social impact bonds, including lessons from the first social impact bond in the United States at Rikers Island Jail. Our guest is Gordon Berlin, the president of the social policy research organization, MDRC. Here's a clip. I would say one of the most important lessons, for me at least, was that SIBs are not the win-win-win they've often been idealized as. There will and can be, uh, you know, losers. You know, sometimes all three parties to a SIB experience disappointment um, and failure on the program side, as we saw. And it shouldn't be surprising. Innovative approaches generally don't work. Um, and learning that is not a failure. I think that's the main distinction I would make. Uh, the SIB, I think, did what it was geared up to do. A social impact bond, or SIB for short, uses private funds from philanthropy or other investors to pay for social, educational, or health programs, with the government repaying investors, plus a return, only if pre-specified results are achieved. A new report by MDRC's president, Gordon Berlin, reflects the experience of SIB projects to date, including the nation's first SIB at Rikers Island Jail in New York City, for which MDRC was the intermediary. As the paper notes, while SIBs are the social sector's hottest impact investing strategy, they've generated a range of reactions from excitement to angst. I'm glad to have Gordon Berlin with us today from New York City. Gordon, welcome. Thank you. I'm pleased to be here, Andy. I want to give our listeners some quick background who may not know this. The Rikers Island SIB was designed to reduce recidivism among adolescent inmates in the jail. The strategy was to provide cognitive behavioral therapy, or CBT, a CBT program with a strong record of success in other settings. It was provided to 16 to 18-year-olds on Rikers, delivered through the site's on-site high school. And I want to quote from your report here, Gordon, it was designed to equip adolescents with the social and decision-making skills to help them take responsibility for their actions, avoid rash and impulsive reactions, and make constructive life choices, and ultimately avoid a costly return to Rikers, unquote. As our listeners may also know, it didn't meet its targets and was discontinued in 2015, two years after its launch. So with that background, Gordon, give us your reflections about what went well and what the challenges were. So the Riker SIB really involved two very distinct uh, undertakings. And I'd say each of those had its own challenges, and we ought to judge each of them independently. So one is the SIB structure itself. You know, is the social impact bond structure a viable mechanism for financing and testing and scaling of social program innovation? But of course, the second is the program model itself. Did it work? You know, was it effective in reducing recidivism? Now, the important thing to understand is that SIBs are nothing more than a financing mechanism. You know, they're not a program. So it's important to start with the problem you want to solve. And I, I just can't stress this enough. The solution, you know, that you want to try and then ask whether a SIB is the right, the best, or the, even the necessary financing mechanism. And how do you articulate the problem to be solved with the Riker SIB? It's obviously reducing recidivism, but tell us more. Sure. When we began, there were 3,016 to 18-year-olds, and they were spending anywhere from a few days to a year on Rikers Island, and they were almost all of them there awaiting trial. And a, I guess a shocking one in two would be likely to return to jail on a new charge within a year of being released. So the question really for us was if we could reduce recidivism rates, uh, 
That would mean enormous savings for the city and taxpayers. And assuming it really did mean less criminal activity on the part of adolescents, it would signal the possibility of a new lease on life for a large number of young people. And there were numerous trials that have been tried of cognitive behavioral therapy, suggesting that that model could reduce recidivism. I think those numbers were in the 25% range or so. So I appreciated, Gordon, your distinction between talking about how well the program worked and how well the financing mechanism worked, in this case structured as a social impact bond. Focusing on the implementation of the program, what were the challenges and how were they addressed? We confronted right away three challenges. First one was, you know, would it be possible to fit CBT into the daily rhythms of Rikers Island? Um, The second was who would deliver the counseling services? And the third, and probably the most important, is that adolescents are there for an indefinite period of time. They're awaiting trial. You don't know when their case will be called. So we really needed a model that was open entry and uh, open exit. And we were able to, you know, figure out that the best place to try this was in the school system. We concluded after a pilot period that teachers were not the right people to deliver the program. We needed to bring in outside facilitators and counselors. By school system, by the way, you mean the high school in the jail. Yeah, I'm so sorry. Thanks for that clarification. Um, The 16 to 18-year-olds were expected to attend school. The Department of Education ran the school, and it was, yes, inside the jail. And we were able to identify this moral recognition therapy model that was open entry. And I would say in terms of what went well, um, we should start with that in terms of once we got operational. um, The key success was the quality of the implementation. The facilitators, I think, did a very good job engaging the adolescents. When the classes were held, you know, all of our monitoring and visits suggested that they, you know, they did a pretty good job. But over time, we encountered three problems that I think at least played some role in in what ended up happening. First, more kids were in administrative segregation than we expected, and that meant that they were segregated from the rest of the adolescents, and they were not attending the school. So we needed to figure out a way to get to those uh, young people and get them involved. Otherwise, we weren't going to reach the targets that were set for this SIP. Secondly, there were a lot of lockdowns, and those lockdowns disrupted class. Um, and of course, we learned later about the many problems with security on Rikers when the many of you may know the U.S. Attorney's Office was investigating Rikers Island. I would say, you know, the, the environment was tense. And last, the adolescents turned out to be there on average for a shorter period of time than you know we had really expected. So many fewer got through the 12-stage MRT process than we had aimed for. We, we did get about, I don't know, 40% or more through at least three sessions, and other programs had had an effect at that level. Um, but we, we didn't reach our targets for, we had hoped to get at least a third of them through um, all 12 stages. So I think all these factors probably contributed to the program not having its intended effect on recidivism. But I, I guess I want to be careful not to imply that CBT would have worked if we didn't face these problems. You know, we don't know. What we do know is that it's a tough environment to deliver a CBT model. So, Gordon, this brings us to the second key question with this project, which is, was the SIB successful? In other words, the structure of the contract and the financing mechanism, even if the program itself had some serious challenges, as you just pointed out. My judgment is that it was a success as a financing mechanism. Government got to try something it would not otherwise have tried, and investors took the risk. 
Um, and we learned a lot about the challenges of intervening in a jail with a program like CBT. So in that sense, I think we, you know, we really got an opportunity to learn things. And I'm, I am really convinced that the Department of Corrections was so overwhelmed with day-to-day crises and just the challenges of, you know, running a jail day-to-day that they would not have had the bandwidth, nor would they have had the resources to experiment in the way the social impact bond allowed them to do. So I think we demonstrated that the SIB deal is feasible, and this was the first one in the U.S. We learned a lot about the structural challenges inherent in these deals, things like how do you balance risk and reward, you know, the inflexibility of um, lending agreements, you know, versus the need to adjust operationally uh, when the problems I described earlier arise. The payback time periods required, um, quite extensive, and that poses some some really interesting challenges for everybody. Will investors wait that long? And even after they're paid back, government usually has to keep running it if they're going to um, actually get to the point where they have savings that exceed what they paid the investors. And of course, how essential the rigorous evidence piece of it really is. All of those points that you just made are discussed in more detail in your paper, and I'll provide a link for our listeners on the podcast website. But finally, Gordon, share with us any high-level takeaways you have about the SIB experience at Rikers. I would say one of the most important lessons, for me at least, was that SIBs are not the win-win-win they've often been idealized as. There will and can be uh, you know, losers. You know, Sometimes all three parties to a SIB experience disappointment. Um, and failure on the program side, as we saw. And it shouldn't be surprising. Innovative approaches generally don't work. Um, And learning that is not a failure. I think that's the main distinction I would make. Uh, The SIB, I think, did what it was geared up to do. And we, we were able to, you know, really learn some things that were valuable. And other programs are now underway to help kids avoid jail altogether. Uh, The mayor just announced one um, uh, uh, early last week. So, Hopefully, we're learning from that experience. Before we wrap up, I want to ask you a few questions drawing on the broader experience of SIBs so far in the U.S. and elsewhere. What types of SIB deals, in your opinion, are likely to work best? In other words, what type of projects? Okay, so let me sort of set this up. Um, I think it's really a question about risk and reward and the role of innovation versus funding proven uh, programs. So think about the kinds of projects a social impact bond might finance and array them along, a, I guess, a continuum of risk. So at one end, you'd have innovative but unproven approaches to complex um, problems that we're dealing with here. And at the other end are so-called proven programs with good evidence of effectiveness at scale in, in various locations. And in the middle are programs with some promising evidence, but maybe they're just in one location or you know, they haven't been tried with that many people. Now, uh, consider two very different kinds of investors. One is lenders, and the other, let's call them sort of venture investors. So lenders accept relatively low rates of return, but of course they expect to finance projects with the minimum risk. And what I'm thinking about here is the whole group of lenders who we've been hoping would be a source of capital for these projects, Um, that finance low-income housing, uh, for example. So that group of lenders really wants to operate at the proven end of the continuum. The problem is um, the lender's cardinal rule is don't lose principal. And by contrast, you know, the venture investor 
can take a lot more risks, but they're going to demand a lot higher return. And the problem here is that government generally isn't going to pay high rates of return. So we have these this continuum of risk, and we have two very different kinds of investors. One is lenders and another group who's willing to take bigger risks, but the government generally wants to pay fairly minimal amounts um, of rates of return because of all the politics associated with this kind of thing. So the, the untried and unproven are not good candidates for SIB financing. Um, instead, I think the programs with some evidence, but possibly not at scale, that's probably the sweet spot. But I guess that leaves open the question, why not proven programs? Um, given that these lenders prefer to locate at that end of the spectrum. But I think there are two problems with this that are posed for the SIB. And I'd say that the first one is that there just are very few programs proven, at, uh, proven to work at scale. And so there really would be very few deals to do. And second, and I, I'd say more important, if a program is proven at scale, I think a really strong argument can be made that government just should do it. Especially because these projects are designed to produce cost savings. Exactly right. In that case, you know, why should government share the return with private sector investors? One thing you emphasize in the report is that the evaluation aspect of a SIB is critical. In other words, the importance of producing credible and, and strong evidence about the impact of the intervention and not just tracking outcomes. It's critical, you note, to the guarantee that government only pays for success. Walk us through your argument there, if you would. Sure. So I guess if I can be a little melodramatic, uh, I think in the paper I say that the social impact bond's most sacred pledge is the promise that government will only pay for success. And success in a social impact bond, because remember, the investors need to be paid back. We need a clear indicator of success. It's usually defined as an improvement in a, you know, in a single outcome measure. So, for example, a reduction in recidivism, maybe in the Rikers case, measured as post-release days spent incarcerated. But of course, the problem is that recidivism rates could fall for any number of reasons that have absolutely nothing to do with the cognitive behavioral therapy program uh, that we were running and financing with the CIV. You know, for example, it could be a change in policing that leads to fewer arrests or a change in court processes that make, you know, cases get heard sooner and make judges more likely to take uh, a, a different stand or to use alternatives. So to ensure that the government only pays for success, payment really needs to be based on, a, I would say, a measure of net impact. You know, the change in outcomes caused by the program above and beyond what would have happened otherwise, something you've heard repeatedly on, on this program. And it, it's for the simple reason that in a lot of these cases, there are lots and lots of alternative explanations if you just rely uh, on simple outcome measures. I'll give you another example based on Rikers. For at least five years back, when we got involved in this, we looked into it pretty carefully before saying we would help the city set it up. Um, 16 to 18-year-olds held on Rikers were, every year, it was about 3,000 uh, young people. And just as we started this demonstration project, that number began to fall quite precipitously. Um, and without a reliable research design, it would have been easy to attribute that drop to the program when in fact it was most likely caused by changing in policing, changes that, you know, that the city instituted in policing. So it's the evidence requirement in a SIB that distinguishes it from other kinds of social investments. That's really why evidence matters. It's crucial also um, to the accountability argument that underlies these SIBs. Um, but the evidence requirement, I would say, it involves 
two special challenges when it's made an integral part of the social impact bond. And the first is that it creates a completely new kind of risk. Investors don't get paid if the evaluator doesn't find that it made a net difference relative to a counterfactual. And that, as we know, is a high bar to cross. And, and in fact, just to underscore the risk for an investor, it's an all or nothing proposition. And that's just completely different than building low-income housing, where you can always just charge lower rent, you're going to get some income back, uh, or you can sell the property if the whole deal goes bust. Um, and then the other problem that's posed um, here, these deals are very hard to structure because, you know, the government's agreeing to do a payback. It needs to get savings. The investors are putting up money, but they don't want to put too much money at risk. But the evaluation costs money. And the big question is whether it can and should be financed as part of the deal. And if it is, then it raises the, the hurdle for the deal to work. That's one of the, one of the other dilemmas about uh, the way these bonds are structured. But as you can see here, both for knowing if you're satisfying the sacred pledge or not, and for government to be held accountable, you, you really do need reliable evidence. A final question for you, Gordon. You make the case for establishing a principal role for philanthropies in SIBs, foundations in other words, who may be better suited, you argue, to be investors in SIBs compared to other private investors. Walk us through your thinking. For many of these deals, philanthropy is going to be crucial. Maybe they don't have to do it alone, but I think as in the Rikers deal, they'll need to backstop any private investors that want to get involved um, because philanthropy can take more risk. Another reason, foundations have a broader array of tools with which to work. They have grant dollars. They don't even expect a return on it when they make a grant. They also have PRI loan dollars, which or loan dollars that they can lend at much lower interest rates. And importantly, in addition to their having a higher risk profile, they have a longer time horizon. On the other side, it seemed to me that SIBs provide something that foundations desperately want. That's the commitment of government to fund things that they've been supporting. So if you think about them as the R&D arm of the public sector or the social sector, you know, foundations are trying new things out all the time. And when they work, they struggle to get government to take it up. And here is a financing mechanism that gets government in the door at the beginning um, with a commitment that if it works and an independent evaluator demonstrates that it's successful, you know, that they will, in fact, step up and, and provide support and, and be a party uh, to the effort. Remember, foundations... Um, can be patient, but they're almost never, their funding is almost never permanent. So ultimately, this connection to government really does matter. And I guess that leads me to just one other thought about this. I do think the promise inherent in a social impact structure isn't going to be fulfilled if success starts and ends with government entities paying back investors uh, for successfully executed SIB models. If these instruments are going to make a lasting difference, governments are going to have to continue to fund proven programs long after the successful SIB agreements end. And interestingly, most of these deals have been structured without that expectation. It's all about just you know, making sure we get to the point where investors have been paid back. And it's true that usually government needs to keep running it to realize the savings, um, which usually don't accrue for several years after they've actually ended up paying back investors. So you've got a head start on that. But ultimately, I think the real question is whether this is a vehicle that gets government involved and then importantly keeps them involved. 
It's a question we all will be interested to track. Gordon, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Andy.